<laughs> open your Bibles, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to be in ver- starting verse 35 today. And as you're turning there, what we're looking at today is going to be pretty interesting. Okay, but we've had three, in chapter 12, we've had three major questions presented to Jesus as a means of trapping him, as a means of uh, trying to get him to say something that they could accuse him of so that they could find an absolute legal reason, whether religious or, or worldly reason, to kill him. And the first one we saw was what? It was the Pharisees and the Herodians you know, saying, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And the second one, we saw the Sadducees questioning about their favorite subject, the resurrection, which they didn't believe in. Then we saw the scribes show up and say, you know, guys, let me take this. We can take it and say, what's the greatest commandment? Because they didn't keep any of them. So they wanted to find the greatest commandment that they said, we got to keep. And so now the neat part about it is what we're going to look at here is it's Jesus' turn. He poses the question now. And this question is interesting. Let's look at it. Look at verse uh, uh, 35. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, that was a real question. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake, offer long, lengthy prayers. That was my addition. Long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now, here's the scene. Jesus began to, to say as he was in the temple. So we, we found out what? He's still in the temple. It's like they won't let him go. Every time he's probably trying to get out of there, they're walking up with a different question. So finally he goes, all right, my question. So we know he's in the temple. To finish off this uncomfortable confrontation, Jesus poses the last question. But here's the interesting part. This question to them is unanswerable. I'll show you why in a minute. Matthew tells us in his gospel, in Matthew 22, verse 46, he says, No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. What do we say now? Boom. Okay? Mic drop. And if you've ever bought one, you would never drop a mic. Okay? Jesus' question was the final invitation. Now, here's, here's the deal. was the final invitation to these men and to the crowd standing there and the leaders and all of them. It was his final invitation to come to him. But here's the, the hard part, and we're going to get into this a little bit. It also exposed the leaders and the people's lack of knowledge of the Torah. They didn't know it. 
And the sad part about it, a little quarter in the meter, if Jesus came today, I firmly believe, and he asked the church today questions, we couldn't answer it. Because most of us, and I'm, and I'm, I'm putting myself in this, most of us don't know the word of God. You know how many people believe that the, the saying cleanliness is next to godliness, believe it's in the Bible? It's not in there. I mean, that's just a little silly illustration. But most people, believe it or not, believe that's in the Bible. And it's not. We don't know the word of God. And neither did these leaders. Because that's why Jesus has posed this question. Okay? Jesus warns the people concerning these so-called experts of the law and exposing them and their worldliness. He goes from asking a question to exposing the very ones he's asking the question to. Why? Who are the theologians? The scribes. It wasn't the fit. Now, we found out that many of the Pharisees were scribes. Not all of them, but many of them. But the scribe's job was to learn the word, to learn the Torah, to learn the writings, the sacred writings, and to be able to explain them. And we're going to find something else about the scribes also. They were supposed to know this stuff. And that's why Jesus asked them the way he did. Look at it, verse 35 again. And Jesus began to say as he was in the temple, how is it that the scribes say, catch that? How is it that the scribes say the Christ is the son of David? How is it? How could they say that? We, we think of Jesus going, how is it? It was more like, you guys listen to me, how is it? How could they possibly say that the Messiah is the son of David? How can you say that? It was, it was, a, it was an indirect, what do they call it, a, a, a backhand. You don't know the word of God. You don't know the scriptures. How is it that you could say this? Here's our premise today. Worldliness is simply the love of self. This selfishness places oneself at the center of one's affections and leaves no room for loving God. That's where we're going to go today because that's what this is talking about. Here we go. Look at verse 35 again. We're going to read 35 through 37. And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. There was an entangled idea. An entangled idea. And what was the idea? Man's idea entangled with God's. What is it? That the Messiah was the son of David, but not the son of God. Jesus asked a specific question concerning what they believed about the Messiah. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? The implication of the Lord's question is this. How can they say that the Messiah is nothing more than the human descendant of David? That's what they believed. This question exposed their mistaken belief that the Messiah would be no more than a powerful uh, military political leader who could deliver Israel from her enemies and establish the promised kingdom. That's what we've seen all the way through as we've been going through Mark. Is that they, this is what they believed. 
that the Messiah was going to come. He was going to be a man. He was going to be a, a, a powerful political and military leader that's going to set Israel free, set the Jews free from the Roman rule, defeat the Roman Empire, and set up his rule, God's kingdom, on in Jerusalem. That's what they believed. But the sad part about it, that is not what was happening. But it was their interpretation. Let me put it in today's term. It was their truth. That was their truth. It doesn't matter what your truth is. That was their truth. Because they didn't know what true was. They didn't know the word of God. So Jesus now untangles their idea. Look at verse 36. David himself said, to the, said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? Now let's look at this. The correct understanding is that he is the Lord of David. He is God himself. Jesus sets the understanding right. You know where this came from? Psalm 110 verse 1. Turn to it real quick. Psalm 110 verse 1. Just for reference sake. you're going, I'm not going to turn it, it's up on the screen. No, turn, turn. Let's hear the Bible pages flip or at least your fingers sliding on your phone. Look what it says in verse 1. The Lord. Now it's interesting, I want to explain something to you. The Lord there is the word Yahweh or Jehovah as we say it, okay? So God, the Lord, says to my Lord. Now that word Lord there is different. It's a word that comes from Adonai. Which is what? It means a Lord. It, it means a high exalted one. But it's, it's different and there's a reason for it because it means this. It means the Lord says to my Lord. This Lord Adonai means supreme ruler. Supreme uh, authority. The master, the Lord, the sovereign. What is he calling? He's calling the Messiah, God. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now let's stop there. Go back to, to Mark if you would. The, here's a couple of facts. Now this sounds like a very academic thing. Just hang on with me. Hang on with me. The fact is this. David called the Messiah Lord, Adonai, in the Spirit, which means what? By the leading of, of the Holy Spirit. He called him Adonai. That is... David's words were spoken under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which gives it credibility, right? Which makes it scripture. The fact is this. David said that the Lord, Jehovah, said to my Lord, the Messiah. David unquestionably called the Messiah Lord, the sovereign one. David, here's another fact. David said that his Lord sits on God's right hand. Why is that, specific, why is that important? Because of this. It was a place recognized by the Jewish leaders and by the Jews themselves to be designated as a designation as co-equal in everything, especially authority, which means what? It was a place for God himself. So the fact is this. David said that his Lord's enemies are beneath his feet. The Messiah's enemies are to be subject under him. It's meaning what? All of this is saying what? That he's saying it can't be just a mere human. The Messiah has to be God, come in the flesh. 
David himself calls him Lord, so in a sense, whose son is he? He says in verse 37, Jesus was saying that the son of David alone was not sufficient for the Messiah. That title was not sufficient. That he is also the son of God, God incarnate. Why? Because no king, which David was, would call anybody else an authority. Understand that now? David was king. Why is he going to say that anybody, some mere man, even the Messiah, if he's just some mere man, why would he be in any authority over a king that God ins installed on the throne, which was David? David was saying, he's higher than I am. He's God himself, even though he may be a mere man. Am I making sense? But here's the question. Matthew says it this way. Who do you say the Christ is? And in our lives, this is a question we need to grapple with. Who do we say that the Christ is? Is he just something or someone or a, a minimal God that we just kind of have fun with and we, and he, we ask him for things and he kind of takes care of us when, when we ask? Or is he God supreme? It's something we need to face. Within this question, Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God himself. Their worldly hearts refused to understand and believe it. Why? The scribes were considered the theologians of the Jewish faith. They were the guys that were the apologists. They were the ones that can make an argument and stand. But here's the thing. The theologians missed the Messiah in all their understanding. They misread the scripture, not letting the scripture speak for, himself, for itself. They studied their teachers and authorities more than they studied the scripture. It's like a pastor today looking in and preaching more John MacArthur's view than what the word says. Or John Piper's view, which there's nothing wrong. You need to look at those but placing a teacher above what the Word of God says, it can get you in trouble. They interpreted the Scripture according to their wants and desires. You know what that's called? Progressive Christianity. I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't like the way that they, they present Jesus in here because he's a, he was a little too tough. So, you know, we're just going to not look at that because we believe our truth is that he's love. But there's no real severity to him. So we're going to look at it that way. That's, that's going to be our truth. And, you know, and it's going on. Have ears to hear. So when our wants and our desires become the filter for Scripture, our heart will begin the slow fade to worldliness and unbelief. When our wants and desires, like the scribes, become the filter for Scripture, our heart will begin the slow fade to worldliness and unbelief. Why do I say, why am I putting that in there? Look at verse 38. Look what happened to them. Look who they were. Look at their character. Look at verse 38. In his teaching, he was saying this. Beware of the scribes. Now stop there for a minute. Do, do you understand the scribes were standing there? Now catch that. The scribes were standing there. And we get upset and we get 
you know, kind of self-conscious when we say, look at somebody and go, no, I think what you're saying there is wrong because it's not according to Scripture. <gasps> we don't put them down. No, let's not put them down. Jesus was standing there. The scribes are right there. They just got done asking a question. He turns to the people and says, beware of the scribes. Beware of these guys. That's not politically correct. And his teaching was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogue and places of honor at the banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Jesus proceeds to warn the crowd against those who pose as experts in the law. And he, you know what he's saying? This is the interesting part. He's saying these guys are very easily recognized. And he tells them how to recognize them. Let's look at the first one. Well, let me say this. This passage exposes the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. And here's the, something to look at as we're going along. Each one of these illustrations, each one of these characteristics have to do with pride and self-love. First he says, they dress funny. <laughs> okay? He says what? They dress to draw attention to themselves. They're really concerned about their appearance. Why? The long robe. Now this is what I found in do doing a little research. The robe was white. And the robe went all the way down to the ground and sometimes even was touching the ground or dragging on the ground a little bit. It was a sign of great wealth. It was a sign of that they were a person, believe it or not, this is true, a person of style. They dressed well. They dressed to be recognized, but that robe was worn by only the wealthy and or the scribes and Pharisees. What was so important about it? It was a sign of position, that they were superior in both their upbringing, their breeding, their material possessions. They were above everybody else. That was a characteristic of them. Second thing, look what it says. And they like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. The greetings and titles, they liked to exalt themselves in the marketplace. They liked to be recognized. The scribes loved the titles that greeted and exalted them with honor. They loved and re reveled in the recognition they received from, from other men. I've known over the years, I've known, like take for instance, when I came here, um, and people started calling me Pastor Ron. And I said, stop that. Don't do that. Just, I'm Ron. Well, you're, you're being, having false humility. No, I just don't like that. But then I got more people saying, this is what we want to call you. Okay, that's fine. I'm not going to stop you. But the thing is, it's not needed. Well, you're, you're the pastor of this church. You're the shepherd. I said, no, I'm not the shepherd. What am I, Amy? I'm a lead sheep. I'm the doofus out front. <laughs> okay? I'm a lead sheep. That's all. Because there's only one shepherd, and that's Jesus Christ. Yes, we call 
we're called under shepherds. No, we're lead sheep. That's all. But these guys liked the, the thing of, of scribe, rabboni, rabbi, doctor. Because why? They liked the praise of men more than they liked to honor God. The praise of men was more important than what God thought about it. Here's another one. He liked the chief seats in the synagogues, the front seats, and also the high seats at the banquets. They liked to be seen, admired, honored. This is pride. In the synagogue, the leaders and distinguished men would sit on a bench in front of the ark. Now, you're going, what, what ark? It was a place where the law was kept. It was a cabinet, and he opened it up, and it was there. And they, there was a bench that sat there, and all the leaders would sit right there and so that everyone can see them. Remember the old days in the churches where they used to have the seats up there and everybody sat up front? Okay, someone went, no, good. But everyone sat up front. Is there anything wrong with that? Is Jesus knocking it? Let me show you. Jesus was not condemning these positions and places, but the love of them. Turn with me to Luke. Say it with me. Luke. Okay, good. Luke 14. Look at verse 7 of Luke 14. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, now imagine, holy... You catching what's going on? Jesus is invited to this place. And he's standing there watching the people wanting to get the best seats at the banquet. Imagine one of your guests at one of your gatherings looking to go, hey, you guys are, you're prideful. Trying to get the, he messed up the banquet. Look at this. And he began speaking a parable and he invited to the invited guests when he noticed how they were being, they were have been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone must distinguish, uh, someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you will come and say to you, give your place to this guy. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go in and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited uh, invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will, be, you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Boom. Here's the next one. The scribes, who were Pharisees in most cases, loved to have long prayers and Loud prayers in the marketplace. Okay? This was to show their piety. But it was all in pretense. Public praying for attention. Michael Card wrote this. He said, they showcased the supposed holiness and devotion to God. They were showcasing their so-called holiness because they could say prayers 
Father, today we thank you. We bless you, O holy God. Yeah. They were making a show so that people would go, wow, they're holy. They're really cool. They're, man, they love Jesus, don't they? No. When our hearts and affections are captured by the world, we will always <clears throat> feel the need to showcase our supposed holiness and devotion to God. You know, this is, I kind of dreaded preaching this because I knew that it was, it's like, yeah, okay. But I'm, can I be just point blunt, honest? I think this is exactly how most of the church, and I am in this category somewhere, like all of us. All we do sometimes is we try to convince people that we're okay. We try to convince people that we're super holy or that we have a really tight uh, relationship with Christ when at that moment it may be falling apart, at least in our eyes. We put on the facade. We, we, we do things in pretense, as they say, trying to make something appear as though it really is, but it's not. This is a game I think the church has been playing for years, and that's why we can't fill a place up, because if you say that, it offends, and people won't want to go someplace else. Now, if I stood up here and said this, man, do you know how loved you are by God? Well, is that true? Yes. And that you have authority. I mean, he loves you so much, he's going to make you little gods. You're on that level. You are, I am in you, makes you I am. Stephen Furtick. That's great. That's what we want to hear. But do we want to hear this? Beware of your own pride. Beware that you're making a show of something that may not be true. Beware of, 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 of giving an image that you're one thing when you're really not. Beware of not knowing the word of God. Beware of not knowing what God's word says. Beware of not knowing how to truly interpret the word of God. Beware that this takes a back seat on Monday and then takes a front seat on Sunday. Beware. Mark chapter 12, verse 30, we looked at it last week. They asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, and he said this, and you shall love the Lord your God with. And what does that mean? Love God with all that you are. Be in love with God. Be in love with him. Turn to 1 John chapter 2, please. You know, over the years, I have many people come to me, which I don't understand, but they do. And they go, what do you think about this? What do you think about this being, is, you think this is God's will for my life, or you think this is this or that? And ask me questions, and 
Sometimes I look at him and I, go, I can't answer that. But I can answer it this way. Find out what God's called you to do and do it. Because it's going to be easy to follow the world and what we think the world wants us to do or what looks good or what we may want to do instead of following what God wants us to do. And you go, well, that's easy for you to say. You felt the call of God on your life. I wrestled with it. That's my wife. I wrestled with it. I wanted to be a cop so bad I could taste it. A drug head wanting to be a cop. That's good, right? I really did. Ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a cop. And I saw what was going to be in the ministry and what I was going to have to do, and I said, nah, I don't know. I don't know. So I applied to five different police departments. Even got my uncle, who is a, a, a captain in the Miami Police Department, to go down there and put a word in for me. And every one of them didn't take me for the same reason. I did not speak Espanol. I couldn't speak Spanish. And finally, out of great frustration, I said, okay. I'll do it. But then I found another easy way out. Music. You're going, maybe you should go back to music. But music, because I could play guitar. Back then I had an okay voice. And I learned to lead worship, and I was okay at it. And so everybody wanted me to lead worship. And that was the easy way out. But the whole time God was speaking, I didn't call you that. I called you to preach. And preach. And preach. What was the music? That was the easy way. It came naturally. It really did. It wasn't hard. This was going to be hard. Because the kid who barely got out of high school had to learn to study. Why am I telling you this? Is it to boast about me? No. It's to say, what has God called you to do? Who is Christ to you? If he is God, if he is Lord, if he is the sovereign, what has he called you to do? Are you running from that? Are you running from the relationship with him? Are you running from the obedience to his word? What are you running from? And I'm saying this to those that may be watching online. What are you running from? Because if you're doing that, you're no better than the scribes, the Pharisees. and the, They did what they loved. You know what it was? Exalting themselves, getting the easy way out. I think that many times we've done an injustice to people coming to Christ because we said, come to Christ and your problems will be solved and God will just take care of everything. How many of the, were your problems solved the moment you came to Christ? How many of it, was it can say it was absolutely easy? Because Jesus said the way is narrow. To get through and to accomplish that all the way to the point where he takes us home, it's narrow. And if you look it up in the original language, it means you can't go through with anything. And I'm going to not try to be crude. It means this. you got to go through naked. You can't have it. It's so narrow that even the thinnest piece of clothing will keep you and it will hang you up in the midst of that. 
That's what God has called us to do. That's, when, that's saying, that's what Jesus meant. So if I consider him God, the sovereign one, then I've got to obey that, and I've got to believe that that's true, and that's got to be my goal. To allow everything that I am to be set aside so that he can be glorified, so that I can go through. Why do you think he said overcomers? He calls them, he who overcomes. What are we overcoming? The world. What is the world? The world system. The world belief. But what more than that, it's ourself. It's a dying, fleshly, nasty self. But see, we don't want to hear that. You know why? Because it's, that's, that doesn't make me feel good. What makes me feel good, the more that I see, is when God goes, okay, Ronnie, I want this in your life. And lately, the last probably several months, that's what it's been going on. More than ever. And it's hard. But the beauty of it is that he gives us the grace to go through. And this is something we don't want to hear. And it's not condemning preaching. It's not. When our hearts and affections are captured by the world, we will always feel the need to showcase our supposed holiness and devotion to God. We started with this. Well, let me, let me back up. We've got to look at First John. First John. Yeah, I've got four minutes. Here we go. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Those three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are Satan's three greatest temptations. He tempted Eve with it in, in, the, in the scriptures. He tempted Jesus with it in the wilderness. And he tempts us with it on a daily basis. Lust of the flesh, what I want. Lust of the eyes, what looks good. And the pride of life, what's going to make me look good. We started with this. Worldliness is simply the love of self. This selfishness places oneself at the center of one's affections and leaves no room for loving God. When worldliness captures the heart of a believer in Christ, their faith in Jesus Christ will be moved to a back seat. For the world will always demand the chief seat and place of honor in a believer's life. They'll always demand it. Who is the Christ to you? Is he sovereign God or is he just a guy? Is he Santa Claus in prayer? Or he's the one that runs your life. You know, I never really, even in the old days, agreed with the four spiritual laws, but there was one thing I did like. I had a little picture. I said, this is your life. And it had a little throne, a little seat. And it had a cross or it had self. Who's on the throne of our life? Is it what we want? 
one of the greatest hardships of my life that hurt more than anything else was when I was at, at Bible college. And singing and leading worship was easy. It was very easy to me. Not anymore because I can't sing like I used to. But it was easy. And because it was easy, and because, now understand when I say this, this is not a brag, because I was good at it, I got a lot of invitations to do it. To the point where it was overwhelming because at college, I, you know, they wanted me on the travel team that went out to revivals, you know, to do music. They wanted me on this team. They wanted me to lead the Baptist campus ministry worship there. They wanted me to lead the special events when the, church, uh, the school did them. They said, man, you put the, put the worship together. You, you be the front guy. They loved it. And that's not a brag me because I, I still can't believe they even allowed me to do it. But it became so easy. And it became, and I'm, I'll be honest with you, there was a time where it was like, yeah, Ron, that was so wonderful, man. What great worship. Hey, thank you, thank you. Man, you did a great job the other, wow, hey, thank you. Man, I felt the presence of God. Yay, hey, thank you, thank you. And I became known as Ron, the worship guy. And it got so huge that my studies went from here, well, they weren't even up there, probably here, all the way down to one day after three years. And I didn't even know this. The registrar called me in and he said, come in, come in my office. I came in those offices. It was at the end of the semester. And I knew what my grades were. D and complete, D and complete, A in Chamber Singers Choir. And he was sitting by his desk, and he started to cry. He goes, I don't want to do this. I said, what? And I knew. He says, you can't come back. He goes, I have been carrying you for three years. He goes, you can't come back. I said, what do you mean I can't come back? He goes, you can't come back to school for a year. You have to sit out. You flunked everything. He goes, Ron, you didn't study. And, I, and he was just crying. He goes, I don't want to do that. He goes, I've grown to love you. He goes, you're an asset to the school, but you haven't been doing school. He goes, you let ministry and the thing you do well and the thing you can do good take over. And I was crushed. I left. I never went back to, to that school. And for seven years, I was, it just ate at me. You're going, does this apply? Yeah, it does. Watch. It ate at me. And so it was easy to move back into what I did good instead of following what God wanted me to do. God wanted me to finish school. He wanted me to do that. That was his plan, his purpose. But I did what was easy, what came naturally, even though God used it. You tracking with me? And so for seven years, I was just, uh, I got married, 
Denise was pregnant you know, after about six years of this. And you know what? And I was angry because there was an incomplete place in my heart, in my life, for what God called me to do. And one day, after counseling and everything else, I come home from Pembroke Road Baptist Church, being with a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor. It was great. I got home, and Denise goes, I enrolled you in college. And I went, what do you mean? She goes, I enrolled you in what you're supposed to be doing. I said, how did you do that? She goes, because you're friends with the registrar, right? I went, yeah. And they know that I'm your wife, right? I guess so. I guess they know now. And they said, they let me register you. Your first semester's paid. She goes, you start in a week. Oh. But it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because you know why? I began to go back and finish what God called me to do. Who is God to you? The scribes did what was easy, what came naturally to them. They were born with that stuff. What are you not born with and born again with? What has God called you to do? Who is he to you? Who is he? Is he God or is he Santa Claus? You know what I mean by that? The church needs the people that will follow what God wants them to do. Let's pray.